In a courtroom in Hancock County, Illinois, May of 1845, word came that the jury had reached a verdict. Everyone in the courtroom stood as they shuffled into the jury box, but five men stood especially tall. Each of them tried to look calm and put on a brave face, but they knew that a single word from the jury would either set them free or condemn them to a miserable death on the gallows. These men were on trial for murdering the leaders of the Mormon Church, Joseph and Hiram Smith, while they were confined in the Carthage Jail in June of 1844. On today's episode, the first of a two-part series, we will take a look at the trial of the accused murderers of the Smiths. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. On June 27, 1844, a mob of about 150 men attacked the Carthage jail. They had disguised their faces by smearing themselves with wet gunpowder. They breezed past the guard, a local militia known as the Carthage Greys, under the command of Frank Warren. The guard offered only token resistance, while the mob rushed upstairs to the room where the prisoners were and killed them. Thomas Ford, the governor of Illinois, was just leaving Nauvoo when he learned about the murders. While he was no friend of the Mormon leaders, the murders incensed him. He had repeatedly and unequivocally promised the Smiths that he would use all the power of the state to protect them from mobs and vigilantes, and he felt that their murder was both an affront to his own personal honor and to the dignity of the state. Over the next year, Ford would work hard often without friends or allies, to bring the killers to justice. The first task was to identify individuals who had participated in the murder, and an inquest began in September of 1844. John Taylor had been in the jail and survived the attack, though he was wounded badly. Despite the makeshift disguises, Taylor positively identified two men among the mob that had attacked the jail, Levi Williams and Thomas Sharp. Two other young men... William Daniels and Benjamin Brackenberry said they were eyewitnesses to the murder. They identified the Warsaw militia, including Sharp and Williams, and other officers within the unit, Mark Aldridge, William Grover, Jacob Davis. Another, Joseph Jackson, was a one-time friend of Joseph Smith. He was not identified by eyewitnesses, but by a remorseful letter he sent to the widowed Emma Smith. Two other young men, Gallagher and Vohees, were identified by the gunshot wounds they had suffered during the attack. Joseph Smith had a small pistol with him at the time of the attack, and he fired into the mob. Gallagher suffered a slight wound to his face, and Vohees was shot through his shoulder. Altogether, the grand jury returned murder indictments against nine men who planned and carried out the attack. But Governor Ford would learn it was one thing to indict accused killers. It was another thing to catch them. Because when word of the indictment spread, the accused killers fled to Missouri, where they would be safe from unfriendly extradition, at least for crimes committed against Mormons. For a time, it seemed that all parties were at an impasse. But ultimately, Ford made a series of concessions to entice the accused killers to come back to Illinois voluntarily. First, they wouldn't be tried in Nauvoo. Second, the trial would be postponed till the following year. And finally, they would get a reasonable bail. While many of the men facing indictment would still not return, five of them did. Tom Sharp, 
Levi Williams, William Grover, Mark Aldridge, and Jacob Davis. Ford was ridiculed in the press for entering a treaty with the fugitives, but as he explained, there really wasn't much he could do. Officers, men, everyone, he wrote, was so infected with anti-Mormon prejudice, I was made to feel severely the want of moral power to control them. So who were these men who returned on their own to face trial? And what was their motive in wanting to kill Joseph and Hiram Smith? The 42-year-old Mark Aldridge was a land speculator and a town promoter. His hatred of Mormons, and Joseph Smith in particular, seems to have come from his bankruptcy. Several years before, he had negotiated with the church to have newly arrived English converts settle in his new town. But within the month after their arrival, Aldridge both raised the rent and the price of flour. So the immigrants packed up and left. He met with church leaders and pleaded with them to return to his town, but they refused and he went broke. 31-year-old Jacob Davis had been appointed circuit court clerk by Stephen A. Douglas two years before. He had won an election to the state Senate overwhelmingly with Mormon support. But when he tried to run for Congress, the Mormons voted instead for the incumbent, and he lost the race. 26-year-old William Grover was a justice of the peace in Warsaw and a company commander within the Warsaw militia. But by far the most famous of the accused were Colonel Levi Williams and Tom Sharp. 34-year-old Levi Williams had a problem with the Mormon people. It was, well, there were simply too many of them. They could elect anyone they wanted by voting as a bloc, and so, in his mind, the only hope for the old settlers was to drive the Mormons out. Williams began carrying out extrajudicial violence, like kidnapping and aggravated assault against Mormon people. But he could be just as vicious against his fellow officers. The week before the murder, he directed a fellow officer be tarred and feathered for what Williams perceived as his lack of spirited aggression against the Mormon people. 31-year-old Thomas Sharp had arrived in Hancock County a year before the Mormons. He had bought a press and began publishing a paper, The Warsaw Signal. While he was initially tolerant of Mormons, Sharp became afraid of the Mormons gathering political strength, represented in sheer votes. And two things especially terrified him. The Nauvoo Legion, that is the city militia made up largely of Mormons, and Mormon citizens running for office. He warned his readers that the Mormons, quote, the vilest system of knavery that has ever yet seen the light of heaven is preparing a yoke for your necks. He blasted Joseph Smith as a greater knave, a more consummate imposter, a more impious blasphemer than any whose acts disgrace the annals of villainy. Now, while Sharp's previous editorials had a tone that was, to say the least, intemperate, they were nothing compared to what he would run on the 12th of June, 1844, after learning about the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor. His writing positively shrieks from the pages. War and extermination is inevitable. Can you stand by and suffer such infernal devils? We have no time for comment. Every man will make his own. Let it be made with powder and ball. Governor Ford's next task was to find a prosecutor willing to take the case, and this too was difficult. Since it was well known at the time that Mormons were leaving for the Rocky Mountains, 
it made little political sense to try to win their favor at the expense of the anti-Mormon vote. Nobody would take the case until Ford approached Josiah Lamborn. Lamborn had once been among the most prominent trial lawyers within the state. He had served for a time as the Illinois Attorney General, but he was hounded by rumors of corruption and his career seemed to be in decline. He drank heavily and had few friends. Even so, Lamborn was a force to be reckoned with in court. One of his cases in particular illustrates the style he became famous for. In that case, he was prosecuting a murder. The defense counsel finished arguing to the jury, making an impassioned, heartfelt plea for mercy and self-defense. The defense argument was very powerful, and Lamborn sensed he was on the verge of losing the case. So he asked for a recess until 7 o'clock that evening. When the jurors came back, Lamborn had set the scene. A solitary candle burned before them, casting ghostly shadows on the wall, as Josiah Lamborn, Bible in hand, stood there in the darkness. With a finger on the verse, he began reading from the Bible, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Again, louder, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. A third time he repeated the verse, and then he extended a finger accusingly at the jury and shouted, That is God Almighty's awful decree. Defy it if you dare. Thoroughly shaken, the jury deliberated only a few minutes before returning a verdict of guilty. And shortly afterward, the defendant was hanged. But Lamborn found that preparing for the case was no easy task. The biggest problem he faced was that the Mormon leaders, even the eyewitnesses like John Taylor, refused to participate. John Taylor had identified both Sharp and Williams during the inquest, but he went to great lengths to avoid a summons, and he declared that if anyone tried to serve him with a summons, he would kill them. He encouraged other Mormons to stay clear of the proceedings. In an editorial of the Nauvoo Neighbor, he wrote, Until every murderer is hanged, shot, or otherwise dispatched, no Mormon should give himself up to the law. Now, to modern observers, this doesn't really add up. How can a person demand that criminals be punished while refusing to help in the process to hold them accountable? But from his perspective, he had been shot repeatedly while in jail under the state's protection. So it's no surprise he doubted the state had the power to keep him alive. The same suspicion is common today among disadvantaged and minority communities, where experience breeds mistrust of courts, prosecutors, and police. Explaining their refusal to help, George A. Smith would later say, We had no confidence that any of the murderers would get justice. We thought we would only endanger our lives while doing no good. But as May of 1845 approached, the scene was set for the five accused killers to face trial. Thank you for joining us on the first of our two-part series on the trial of the accused murderers of Joseph and Hiram Smith. On our next episode, we'll go through the trial, the testimony, the witnesses, the evidence, and the ultimate result. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. 